Welcome back to the FKT Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Anderson. Today we're chatting with John Kelly. John is no stranger to the FKT scene, having set many FKTs, as well as finishing the infamous Barkley Marathons. He's been on the show before, but today we're going to chat about his recent supported Wainwrights FKT in the UK, as well as what the FKT scene is like in the UK and his future plans. So let's dive in. Hey, John, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to chat for a bit. I know you're in the midst of acclimatizing for hard rock and a big move back across the ocean. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, of course. We just arrived in Leadville last night, so I I might have to stop and catch my breath every now and then (laughs) as I'm I'm talking to you. Yeah, it's a little higher in elevation there than it is in England. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think I was at like 16 feet where I lived in England. So, so. <laughs> yeah, as somebody who grew up at 75 feet, I understand. Yeah, it's like hard to fathom sometimes when you go to the mountains. So obviously, I mean, you recently returned to the US after several years in the UK. And I just thought we'd start out maybe talking a little bit about the FKT scene there versus in the US, because obviously, you're kind of in this unique position having done multiple FKTs in both countries. Well, first of all, this is something I've mentioned to Buzz before, but there's a little bit of pushback in the UK on the term FKT to begin with. And and so I think when Buzz and and Peter Bachman, they came up with this FKT term, it was legitimately, there were all these routes that they had no idea who had the fastest time on them. The best they could say is that this is the fastest known time. In, In the UK, there is a very rich tradition going back many years on a lot of these routes. And it's also much more concentrated. Obviously, as a smaller country, there are a smaller number of more significant routes. And and so they very much know what the fastest time is. And they are very assertive in in using the term record uh, rather than FKT uh, on some of these routes. Mm. Um, but yes, it's, it's a very rich tradition that, that has a, an amazing amount of support uh, around these uh, efforts, whatever you would like to call them. Uh, and it was exciting to be a part of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and not too surprising that there would be variations in other countries on what they are called. I think that's really neat that there's like a longstanding tradition and getting to be a part of that. It's always very fun to be part of something that there's a legacy to. So while you were in the UK, you said several FKTs, but your most recent one is the one I kind of want to focus on today. And that was of the Wayne Wrights 214. And I think that a lot of our listeners might be US-based and they might not know, first of all, what that route is or understand maybe what things like rounds and fells are. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about the basics and also the Wainwrights route itself. Yeah, so the Wainwrights are a, a set of peaks. Uh, well, peaks is, is a loose term here. It's, it's 214 tops in the English Lake District, which is where the Bob Graham round and a number of other big English challenges take place. And th- they were 214 of his favorite viewing spots. And so most of the time, those are peaks. Sometimes they're slightly off of the peaks where he felt there was you know, a better view uh, looking in one particular direction. It's a lifelong uh, goal of many walkers and, and hikers in, in England. And it was first done as a continuous round uh, over three decades ago at this point, uh, Alan Heaton and, and Joss Naylor, uh, two of the legends of, of fell running, did it. And it was really revived back in 2014 when someone plotted out, uh, Steve Birkinshaw plotted out the best uh, 
throughout of, of doing this, of connecting these tops in one continuous go. And it's seen uh, various improvements on this over the years, both in, in time and in the route itself. Is one thing that I found is quite exciting that I loved uh, about fell running and, and running in the UK in general is is how much of it is is freestyle and that there's not these defined trails. It's run along this trail or run along this route and, and that's exactly where you have to go. It's I need to hit that peak and that peak and that peak and it's completely open access, just open terrain that you get to choose the best line between each of them and even between people, between weather conditions, that can vary quite a bit. So it adds a, a big element of creativity and another bit of complexity to it. That sounds similar to me to the kind of the way that Nolan's 14 is usually approached here. Yeah, definitely. And so what exactly is bell running? It's really the term given for it in that area, the, the English Lake District. In, in Scotland, they're more fond of the term hill runner. It's quite similar in, in both ways, where, where again, you, you have these huge, vast areas of open terrain and open access land where you're allowed to freely explore it. And so it is going from, from peak to peak to kind of hit these checkpoints in whatever way you feel is the fastest. And so it can vary quite a bit from the sort of thing like the Wainwrights to these very hard and, and fast races, which are exciting to see. I'm a bit disappointed I never got to participate in, in one, uh, largely thanks to, to COVID, but people just absolutely bombing down these descents out there and these uh, the mountains that are lower elevation, but they are they are quite steep and, and quite challenging. Yeah, I enjoyed looking through your photos from your Wainwrights trip, and it definitely did look like challenging terrain in some of those areas. So the Wainwrights itself, it came out uh, on my watch and another person uh, that did it recently to uh, 350 to 360 miles, uh, mm -hmm. somewhere in there, and about 120,000 feet of elevation gain. And, and when you look at most challenges in these areas, uh, that's comparable to what they are for every, you know, 60 miles or every 100 kilometers, you might have 20 to 25,000 feet of elevation gain. And then on top of that, the, the thing that is rather unique compared to the U.S. is the terrain, uh, having to deal with, with bogs and other features that really I, I had no comprehension for, for what a bog was uh, before I came Okay. <laughs> And then also highly volatile and unpredictable weather patterns. I've certainly mm. seen more extreme weather in any one direction, uh, but the speed at which the, the weather can change, particularly the wind, uh, can mm. be extremely difficult to, to be prepared for and to deal with when you're out there. All things that can really up the challenge of anything you're doing. So what would be your top um, bog traversing tips or bog avoidance tips maybe are better like <laughs> that you learned uh well first you've got to look for the the kind of neon green looking algae uh on the ground that okay. that's that's normally a, a big uh indicator that, that there's a bog there uh you, you don't want to step on that because they can disguise themselves and look like just normal ground until you step and mm -hmm. sink up to your chest and have no idea how to get out uh, oh, wow. if, if there is one there, then finding tussocks, uh, the, the big clumps of overgrown grass, those can kind of provide 
uh, sort of stepping stones uh, to, to get across, you're, you're still going to get wet and, and filthy, mm-hmm. uh, probably up to your knees, uh, but you at least hopefully won't sink and, and get stuck in there. Right. Don't want to end up like the bog, the bog people that they're, they dredge up from time to time. Yeah. I mean, there have been stories of, of entire tractors uh, sinking in, into wow. these things. Crazy. Yeah. We don't really have that in the U.S. at all. <laughs> Since you mentioned that this is like kind of an open-ended terrain and methodology, did you design your own route for the Wainwrights or did you follow a route that other people had done? I mainly followed that original route that that Steve Birkinshaw put together, which was just an enormous undertaking uh, on his part. He he lives in the Lake District and and just trying to optimize the best route between 214 peaks. That's difficult to do on the road, much less out in the mountains. And so from that, Paul Tierney broke his record a few years later, made some minor improvements to the route. Sabrina Vergi broke Paul's record, made some minor improvements to the route. So I had the information um, from their attempts. Sabrina uh, was extremely supportive and, and provided me with, with her data and her information on her route. And so I just I made some minor tweaks uh, on that that I, I felt was better suited for my own preferences and, and running style. Uh, and and went with that. Yeah, the amount of logistical preparation to like come up with that route is just mind boggling. Like, you know, studying that, like as somebody who does a lot of peaks and has linked things up, like it's difficult to do. And on that scale, it's just incredible. Earlier, you mentioned the distance and the vertical ascent for the route. And I feel like that's pretty next level for most ultra runners. And so I'm kind of curious, how did you train for the Wainwrights? Like, was it any different than what you ordinarily do uh, for doing something so big and so long and difficult? Not a lot different. And to be honest, I've kind of moved away from even thinking of myself as training for, for things. Uh, and, and part of this has been working with my coach, David Roach, over the past few years and having a goal of really just maintaining my fitness as high as possible and then leading up to an event, aiming that fitness or, or sharpening it just a bit for that particular challenge. So for this, going into it, I got some more steep terrain, a few big days in, in the mountains to kind of hone that fitness towards being able to deal with that amount of vertical. Of course, right now going into hard rock and out here trying to acclimate to the altitude, which is a unique mm-hmm. challenge for me. But but really for the most part in training, my, my goal is to just maintain my fitness as much as possible throughout the year and be ready to adapt that to, to whatever comes my way. That seems like a really good approach and a good way to keep yourself healthy. So you took 11 hours, I believe, off the previous time. Were you on that pace? Like, was that your original goal? Or were there moments where you were off your projected pace? Like, how did that unfold? Because this was like several days. Yeah, so I I originally had an extremely aggressive, ambitious goal of trying to go under five days. For these things that, as we've mentioned before, the logistics is particularly difficult and especially if it's supported because you have all these support runners coming out to meet you you have people meeting you at various checkpoints along the way and doing something that's this long and trying to tell someone i'll be at this point at this time five days from now that's quite difficult and so i kind of had a buffer on my estimations and so where i finished was uh, around where that buffer was and 
as I progressed and people watched my tracker, they could see where I was relative to my pace. But I did know as conditions evolved that I was going to kind of drop off that aggressive pace in, in some sections. Some of the earlier parts are quite technical and rocky, and it was a bit wet and claggy for those. And I knew there's just no way that I'm going to keep that pace going over wet rocks that early on uh, when I, I have no interest in injuring myself that with that much to go. Right. So, yeah, it's uh, quite difficult to, to plan out those times, but you have to be willing to adapt and, and just accept that this is the pace that's comfortable, the pace that is going to enable me to, to have my best performance here rather than trying to, to push through and injuring myself or burning myself out early on. Yeah, that's definitely like the longer something is, the more of a consideration that is, and especially with a, juggling a support group. I'm curious if you had any notable snafus with support, like maybe they weren't there at the right time or you weren't there at the right time or was there anything like that that happened? There was one spot where it was a support point that's a bit remote. It's a very, very small village uh, that, that I passed through and there was a bit of miscommunication as far as where the exact meeting point would be. So we, we missed the support for the next section. Uh, and unfortunately, one of my uh, support runners from the previous section was, was able to continue on with me. We were mm -hmm. able to ration uh, the, the food that we had left until the, uh, the next group of support runners were able to sort things out and, and figure out where we were and meet us uh, about halfway through that section. So that was definitely not as planned, but it all worked out. And, you know, those those sorts of things add to the adventure uh, a bit, right. as long as they do uh, work out <laughs> in the end. Yeah, that's good luck that you had somebody with you that could continue on and good that it worked out. I haven't really done much in the way of supported, but that's always like my fear when I consider doing supported. I'm like, I'm trusting somebody else is going to be where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there and actually have, you know, if I have it myself, carry it with me, then I know it's there. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's also though, for me, a, a big source of, of motivation. I mean, before I came to the UK, I was more used to doing self-supported and, and unsupported things. And it really took me a, a bit of adaptation to accept the support when I came in and started doing these challenges. And it, I found that for me, when I'm out there in these terrible conditions at all hours of the day and people are showing up to help me, and I, when I get in a bad spot, I can't just quit. Like in my head, mm -hmm. these people are, are showing up to meet me at this tiny village at 2 a.m. in the middle of a horrible storm. I can't just let them be there and, and me not show up. So it, it, it works both ways and has been great to, to feel a part of that and, and really for these efforts to feel like a, a true team effort with the community pushing for these times to get as high, well, I guess as low as they possibly can. That's really beautiful. I like that a lot. I like that feeling of community and yeah, being able to see it from both sides. So you kind of have mentioned the weather a couple of times. Can you talk a little bit about maybe the biggest weather challenge you faced during the Wainwrights? Was the weather you had what you expected? From what I've come to expect uh, from some of my previous <laughs> challenges in the UK, the weather was quite nice. And for five and a half days in the Lake District, 
I would never dare to, to hope for better. Like I said, there was some quag, there was some wet rocks I had to deal with uh, early on, but I, I've been out doing these things before in the middle of named windstorms. I had nothing <laughs> like that. My temperature mostly stayed in a pretty good spot, not too warm, not too cold. There was just one section where some rain did roll in. It got a bit nasty. I, I got a bit cold and, and wet. And I mean, to be honest, I would feel like I cheated if I didn't have at least <laughs> one section like that in the Lake yeah. District. But it was tough more so because I pushed through it. It, it was later on. It was on the next to last day. And I, I pushed through it in order to, to get out of those conditions in order to get back down to the checkpoint and, and to warmth and pushing and kind of emptying my reserves there re really depleted me uh, to where when I did get to that next checkpoint, it took me a, a bit to, to recover, to warm back up and to be able to get going uh, on the next section at, at a good pace. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that happens to a lot of us when we're out there. I mean, you're almost in like a survival situation, or at least your body perceives that. And you push through things just fine. And then when you're finally safe or it's warm, then you actually feel much worse than you did when you were going through the thing that was so challenging. Yeah. And in particular, it's highly likely, has been the case for me at least, that you uh, didn't eat sufficiently uh, during that stretch right. because eating when it's wet and windy and, and cold, uh, digging those things out of your pack, taking your gloves off, getting them opened, it's a pain. Uh, and kind of easy to ignore when there's something that's more important on your hierarchy of needs <laughs> at, at the moment. For sure. Yeah, I've definitely had situations where I was like battling hypothermia for hours and the end basically collapsing, exhausted, and then realizing, oh, well, you have been going hard and didn't eat or drink anything for the last like six hours. You know, it's like, yeah, you just don't think about that. You are just focused on getting through. And eating helps keep you warm too. So that's mm -hmm. again, where a good support crew can come in handy and keep reminding you of that and not take no for an answer uh, when things get to that stage. Like, I'm going to put it in your mouth if you don't eat. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So I'm kind of curious a little bit about the route finding and navigation for a route like this. I mean, obviously you had a route you were following, but did you use like regular maps? Did you have a GPS unit? Were you just using a watch? Were you relying on your support crew to help you with the navigation? Like, you know, a little bit about how that worked. So... I did have everything tracked out on GPX files to be able to follow. My support runners, most of them used that. Some of them prefer the map and compass, and some of them just know the area well enough that they kind of just don't need anything. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, I, I would largely defer to, to their experience and, and expertise there. There were a few times where I opted for something other than what my support runners we're going for, taking a more direct line, or in some cases, one that avoided a, a bit of up and down at the expense of more distance. So the main thing uh, on having support runners there for navigation is, is to relieve you of that mental energy. As we see it in things like Barclay, just having to focus on that and never having a second to, to let up and to relax, it, it really can get to you. So being able to kind of have this mental drafting, even if you know where you're going, is enormously beneficial. And then the flip side of that, though, is there were times where I told my support runners, let me navigate for a bit, because I know that that's something that keeps my mind occupied and engaged 
And if I'm in a point where I'm starting to fall asleep and, and really kind of drift out of it, then that's something that I, I know can help me. So that's where I would take over navigation and just tell them, you know, if I start to make a horrible mistake, then yell or throw something at me. Yeah, it's very exhausting, the mental aspect, especially going into something that's that's days long. No mental break can be completely draining. And you mentioned sleep briefly there where you're getting tired. So I'm kind of curious, since this was like a multi-day effort, how did you handle sleep? Like what was your sleep strategy and did it evolve and change while you were out there? Or did you have a plan and stick with it? I did better on sleep than I expected to, uh, honestly. It's something I've struggled with in the past on, on multi-days, particularly once you get well over that kind of two and a half to three day mark. Like the first time I did Tour de Giant, I once I got past three days, I was just, I was gone. I was I was taking constant dirt naps, stopping at every checkpoint to, to take a nap. I simply couldn't get through it uh, towards the end. And so on this, I wanted to try as best I could to not let myself get past that sort of point of no return uh, on sweep, where your debt just builds up so high that, that your body can't deal with it. So unlike, uh, I think a common strategy on multi-days is, is to push through the first night. Uh, and, and not sweep at all. I opted to go down for, I think I ended up sweeping about 40 minutes the first night, uh, which fortunately I was able to get to sweep quickly. That, that's my biggest fear in trying to get sweep is that I'll lay down and I won't fall asleep. And then I'm just, I'm wasting time, which is, again, that's why dirt naps are so great. You know that you can fall asleep and you just do it right there, right then. Um, but I, I got about 40 minutes that first night and then the subsequent nights, uh, or the middle nights, I, I had about three hours budgeted for it and I would stop and, and eat and take care of my feet, anything else that needed done, tell my crew to wake me up after like two and a half hours. But generally I think every night uh, I woke up around an hour and a half to two hours. And at that point I get up and I keep moving. And then the last night I went back to just sweeping about 40 minutes. So all in all, uh, I, I think I swept eight to nine hours uh, over the, the five and a half days. And there were only a few sections where I drifted into that just, I, I don't hallucinate. I, I've never hallucinated. I, I feel a bit jealous of, of people that have got to have these uh, experiences. <laughs> but I, I get to the state where I uh, just, like it's, athletic induced narcolepsy is is the best way I've, I've thought of mm -hmm. um, describing. I can just fall asleep on, on my feet while I'm running. I can just hit the mm -hmm. dirt and be gone. And so I, I only had a few sections where I, I had to, to battle through that. I too tend to get the ultra running narcolepsy or whatever you called it. I have literally fallen asleep while moving and woken up on the ground. <laughs> So we've known each other for a long time and I've kind of seen your your running evolve and change a little. And so I'm, I'm curious if you have a, a desire to continue exploring like very long, like multi-day FKTs like this or maybe even longer. I, I very much do. For me, always a, a trade-off of doing these challenges, having these big goals and these big experiences, getting to explore versus balancing that with my job and, and with my family. So there's definitely... Uh, value I take from these things that, that apply to both of those. Uh, there's there's value uh, in, in my kids seeing me take these on and, and accomplish these things and, and pursue my passions. Uh, but there's definitely a point of diminishing returns and a limit on that uh, that, that I, I have to constantly evaluate. 
and so uh, for me, like the the AT has has always been my holy grail. Uh, of I, I would just I would love to be able to to take that on, uh, but it's it's a matter of of finding the time uh, to do that uh, around my job and and family and other things. I mean, I mean even uh, the the FKT, you know, that that's a month and a half <laughs> that, that you have mm-hmm. to to set aside for for doing that. So we'll see. We'll we'll see uh, where things go uh, with my job, uh, where yeah. where my obligations land there, and how I can plan these things uh, again to be to have the family be a part of them. Uh, it was just it was awesome on, on the Wainwrights on, on the the last uh, day to have my my wife and my kids were out there. They met me at various points uh, along the route, uh, both at checkpoints and up in the hills. My kids ran the, the final stretch with me to the, to the finish. I, I had to tell them to, to slow down. I yeah. <laughs> couldn't keep up with them at that point. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's it's great to be able to do that. And so uh, I'll have to constantly look at what I can do there and, and what fits in. But one day I, I still have hope for for the AT, uh, at, at least, yeah. to, to be able to do that. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I've really enjoyed is seeing how you integrate your family into a lot of your adventures. I have no doubt you will figure out a way to do the AT in the future. <laughs> yeah, uh, hopefully in the next few years. I, I will say after Hard Rock this year, I, I'm going to kind of with the move and everything else I've had going on, I, I'm going to take a stretch of smaller things, maybe, maybe going for the the SCAR, the Smokies Challenge Adventure Run, which mm-hmm. I, I held at one point in time and I lost it while I was in the UK. Uh, which right. is just a, a 70 mile stretch of the AT that goes through uh, Great Smoky Mountain National Park right next to where I live. Uh, and so that one is, is quite meaningful for me. And, and then the latter half of this year, I might even just do a legit marathon build and, and see what I can do in that while I'm still able to do it before I get too old to run fast. Yeah, yeah. I think it is good and important to balance. You do an amazing job of balancing, but also just balancing like your actual athletic endeavors, you know, like doing a marathon build, you know, something a little different, giving your body and your brain a chance to rest from like the long things. Yeah. And I actually think there's part of me that regrets not doing, getting into ultras sooner than I did and and kind of having a much longer window to be at the, the top of my game. I didn't start doing these uh, at all until I, I guess I was 28, which is still much earlier than a lot of people have gotten into it. But I, I still look at that as, oh, there were five or six years that I, I, I just missed. And even when I started, I was only doing it part time. But but I look back at that now and I, I'm kind of like, maybe that was for the best. Maybe that's what allowed me to build my volume and to build my base in an effective and consistent and, and steady manner. The, those years that I was splitting time between triathlon and ultra running and getting a bunch of aerobic volume on the bike. I think that that could really contribute to what has been for me possibly one of my greatest gifts in ultra running in that I just haven't had any bad injury setbacks. I've, I've been at this for nearly 10 years now with uh, fortunately out any major injuries that have uh, forced me to sit out and, and be sidelined for a while. Yeah, injury and burnout are very real. And I think you can never know, you can't go back and see how things would have been different had you made other choices. But I definitely think that the more varied your training is, the better. I mean, you're definitely proof of that with, you know, what you're talking about. I don't know that there's many 
runners out there who can say that they've gone 10 years without a major injury, especially doing things at like the volume and level that you have. Well, and, and that's the other thing I, I've actually, I feel like since, since I, I started working with, with David, I, my volume has at least done in how many hours I'm putting into it has, has dropped. I, I mean, I'm, I typically peak at 70 ish miles per week, which is absolutely nothing. Uh, compared to what you see uh, other other ultra runners doing. But again, there's kind of a total amount of stress that your body can take. And that's not just running, that's job and other life stresses uh, taking into account. And with that factored in, that's, that's basically been my peak. I do have one much bigger week uh, coming up leading in, into Hard Rock, but that's that's atypical. Yeah, I think that's something often that people overlook. And I know for me, when I was starting out in ultra running, you know, I was kind of just surrounded by all these Bellingham trail runners doing 100 plus mile weeks and all they did was run and I'm trying to like emulate that. And for me, basically 70 is also my magic number. And it took me a long time and a lot of injuries to figure that out. Because I kept trying to be like emulating what I was seeing around other people. And I think that is something that comes with age and experiences, understanding your own body and your own formula for success. And it isn't a one size fits all. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and that number, again, that's, that's not much different than what uh, a lot of serious marathon runners put in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's basically all of the questions I had for you. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about either with the Rights or upcoming goals or anything else you'd like to share? I guess part of it for me is, is just considering what I want to do in the future going forward, split between races versus doing these, these FKTs and other challenges. I've really enjoyed having both over the past few years with COVID in particular. It's, it's definitely been much heavier on the, the FKT side. Uh, that I've been pursuing these things, and it's been exciting to to see the the community grow and to see the amount of effort and focus on on some of these previously lesser known routes grow. So I, I'd I'd like to continue doing these things, but I also hope that these can evolve into more than just FKTs. When I look at something like the Wainwrights or the Pennine Way, I don't want it to be viewed as, as kind of, well, you've got to try to get the FKT or the record or, or else it, it doesn't matter. Like these, these routes are, are so beautiful. And I, I want to see these FKTs bring attention to those routes and put it into people's heads to, to get out there and, and do these in whatever way suits them. The Wainwrights is, makes an, an incredible uh, multi-day hike, ha- have a, a long distance through hike of it, stop in the, the villages along the way and take it at your own pace. And so I, I'd like to see some evolution and not just terms of the fastest known times on these routes, but seeing what we can do as, as far as the, uh, all the known times of, of celebrating the people going out there and, and completing these challenges and uh, adding their, their name to the, the list of, of people that have done that. Yeah, absolutely. The value is in the journey, not in the time. So that's a great takeaway. So thank you very much for coming on the show today and chatting with us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much. I enjoyed it and, and look forward to uh, hopefully seeing you again. Uh, yes, in, in person, future. maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Thanks again, John, for coming on the show. You can check out his FKTs on the website, fastestknowntime.com. 
and follow him at Random Forest Runner on Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, this is Heather on the FKT Podcast. Thank you.